preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. And some of them who were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as to Antioch. Why wasn't one of the twelve sent? There's an immediate question that must come to mind. Weren't they told to begin in Jerusalem, pass through Samaria and Galilee and go all the way to Rome? None of them were sent. I wonder why. And why was Barnabas sent? Well, we shall look at that more closely, but come on now. When he came and had seen at verse 23, the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue or cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Again I asked the question, why didn't he go back to Jerusalem and, and uh, invite one of the apostles to come? He doesn't do so. He leaves for Tarsus to seek for Saul. And when he had found him at verse 26, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now come on to verse 25 of chapter 12. We've missed some of the reading out, but we just will stop at this point. Verse 25 of Acts 12, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now the church, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Notice, Barnabas comes first. Barnabas. Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Marnain, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Saul comes last. Is this accidental? I don't think so. And as they ministered, verse 2, to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas, the first on the list, and Saul, the last on the list, for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, laid hands on them, and they sent them away. Uh, we best read one more passage. I think we best. In chapter 15. Chapter 15. And at verse 36. We have to, we're crossing quite a bit of scripture. But this is important for the message. Verse 36. Then after some days Paul said to Barnabas. 
It's the other way around now. Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And they went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. So now let's look at our message this morning. Barnabas was not his actual proper name. It was Joseph. We're told he was a Levite, born in Cyprus, an early believer, and almost certain foundation member of the early church in Jerusalem. So he was there right from the beginning. And that should alert us to the fact that he was a key person in the plans and purposes of God. See, the foundation members of this church are almost non-existent now. But in the providence of God, in the reading of the narration of this particular person, we find that he was there from the beginning. Now, notice, the given name that was given him by the apostles was Barnabas. It actually means son of a prophet. But because the prophetic ministry was one of encouragement, it was certainly not all doom and gloom as some people try to portray it. If you read through the prophets, you will find they all strike the note of hope. Why? They believe in a just God and a saviour. So, he was given the name Barnabas. It eclipsed his personal name. If Luke hadn't told us, we wouldn't have known. That's the truth of the matter. For all the way from chapter 4 right to the end of chapter 15, he's always Barnabas. They gave him a name and it stuck. And it wasn't, a, you know, an abbreviated name, which we are very prone to do in our modern generations. We tend, if a person's given a name, we still can shorten it, even though the parents are determined that this is a name that won't be shortened. You, you listen to the children at school, and they've shortened it, all right. You thought it couldn't be done, but they proved you wrong. Well, why did they give him the name Barnabas? Well, it aptly described him as to his character and actually as to his essential self because it comes in the very context where he sells all the land that he possesses and brings the proceeds to the apostles. If you look closely through Acts, Barnabas is there all the way from chapter 4 to chapter 15. If you notice that when Paul mentions Barnabas, 
He always calls them Barnabas. 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 2, Colossians 3. He's always Barnabas. He was the man with the big heart and with the big hand. If you remember Mr. Ralph Martin, he was a, he was a man that stood huge and large, and he had a big hand, and you felt you were shaking a leg of mutton. But with the big hand was a big heart. Now, come to what, well, let's look at his characterization. What actually characterized him that made them so adamant that this was really his true name? Well, he was characterized by a large generosity of spirit. You only have to turn the page from chapter 4 to chapter 5 to see Ananias and Sapphira actually conniving to, to keep back part of the money. But that wasn't true of Barnabas. He gave the lot. He said, if Jesus gave his life for me, I'm going to give back my livelihood to him. Notice the second thing. He was characterized by broadness of mind. This can be easily proved by the fact that Paul, who was the most ardent persecutor of the church in the first chapters of Acts, a man that you wouldn't touch with a barge pole. In fact, the church of Jerusalem were very slow to welcome him at all. They said, this man was so zealous in his persecution of us, it's just impossible that he would get converted. And I know all about that because when I got converted, an elder in my first church said, I don't believe it. It took him about 20 years to admit he said it, by the way, but he, I don't believe it. And the reason was that he tried to sell me insurance seven times and it failed. He said, if I can't sell him insurance, then no one would have ever brought him to faith except that I'd brought to faith in one night by a simple verse that was quoted to me by one of the believers at half past 11 at night and at half past 3 in the morning I was converted. So I know all about these people that say these people just can't be converted. And uh, William Booth, who sent two Salvation Army lassies into the East End of London to establish a port and bring a witness and they sent him back a telegram saying it's too hard he wrote back a shorter one try tears they wrote back another one it works so he broadened us a mind he certainly is instrumental in bringing Saul within the fold just as well Thank God for a Barnabas. Second thing is when he went to the Gentiles and saw the work of God in their midst, he was glad. Here he is, an ardent Jew, and he's had such a change of heart and such a breadth of vision now that he, he, he exhorts him with purpose of heart to cleave to the Lord, to continue with the Lord. I tell you, we need Barnabases. 
But like thirdly, now his loyalty of heart. He remained true to Paul, and later he remained true to Mark. Two people that you and I would have written off if we were less than spiritual. And some people who we just shake our heads and say they'll never get converted, yet they do. I'm thinking of meeting the man in the back, beyond the black stump in the back of South Australia. He had served behind the longest bar in the Southern Hemisphere. And he got converted and he invited all his ex-workers, friends, to come to the wedding of his daughter to a Christian. And it was a Christian wedding and there was no beer. I tell you, they knew he'd got converted. Oh yes. But you and I would have written a person off of that kind of character. We'd have said he's just totally so unreliable. I met him. And the joy of the Lord was just in his face. It was tremendous. Well, what did Luke call him? He said he was a good man. Now, if you look through Luke and Acts, you will find that Luke very seldom makes any comment about a person. He doesn't make any comment. But in a rare note of appreciation, he has to say something about Barnabas. Was this in view of what happened later when he fell out with Paul? May well be. But it says that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now we need to, we need to process that, so let's look at that further now. He was a good man. As to his testimony, this was given to him by Luke. He was a good man. Now, in my travels amongst assemblies, I've seen all shapes and sizes, I can tell you. But there are people that stand out in my mind as good people, I tell you. They are the salt of the earth. They are the very genuine article, and you meet them and you greet them, and you know them, and you appreciate them, and you give them the full credit that's due to them. They are good people. We've got some in this church. Don't ask me to name them, because that, be, that would be not fair, but we have got some very good people in this church. And when the history books are opened in the annals of heaven, you will soon see. Well, this is his personal identity. He was a good man. Now, when people say to you, there's none good, no, not one, I remind them that this verse is actually in the Bible. And he was a good man. Mind you, it's used as an adjective. It's not used as a noun, is it? There's none good, no, not one. And by the way, Barnabas had two hiccups, one over Paul and one later caused by Peter. If you read about it in, in Galatians 2. So he wasn't perfect, but he was a good man. Oh yes, good men make mistakes and so do good women. Oh yes, they do. Now, 
He was a shining witness. I tell you, when they saw what he had done to sell all his ancestral property and bring the lot, he set a benchmark for every other person within that early church in the matter of giving, and no wonder he was called a good man. Now, without going into the details, because they are there, coming back to his spirituality, coming back on the... He was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, what does this mean? You know, the charismatic viewpoint that you just like a flask of, uh, and you just, the Spirit of God is just poured into you, is a nonsense because the Spirit of God is a person. And Mr. Charlie Hewlett, in his little book on the Holy Spirit, which deserves to be better known, rightly pointed out that the self-saying Holy Spirit dwells in the spiritual believer as in the carnal believer. And there's not a question of having more of the Spirit. We could rightly say the Spirit should have more of us. And what it means to be full of the Spirit, he's fully controlled by the Holy Spirit and he's fully enabled by the Holy Spirit to do that which God calls him to do. That's what it actually means. And I put it down there. And so he's sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I heard one preacher many years ago when I was only just a new Christian and travelled through the South Island with a Baptist friend of mine. We went to hear this particular preacher in Invercargill of all places. And I can hear him in the pulpit saying, Now, Lord, bless this service tonight. And bless the, bless the word spoken and the hymns sung and the scriptures read. And he said, Lord, make us sensitive to your Holy Spirit. I never forgot it. I can't tell you what he preached on. I can't even tell you what we sang. I can't tell you even the scripture he read. But I can tell you I remember those words. Sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So... As to his loyalty, he was of faith. Now, faith in the New Testament does mean to actually rely upon, to trust in, and to commit oneself to. But it also means, as the Hebrew word can be checked out, it does mean not only faith, but faithfulness. If you trust in Christ and you say you're a believer, then you start as a believer, you go on as a believer, you're always a believer, and you're never not a believer. So he was a faithful believer to his Lord and he was a faithful believer to his fellow Christians. He kept faith with them and expected them, of course, to keep faith with him, which, of course, they did. Now then, let's look at his generosity of spirit. What does he do? He sells the land, which was probably in Cyprus, though possibly in Jerusalem, showing his wealth, station, and position. He gives it all to the apostles, the whole lot. So when you and I mention about the woman who was the, uh, the widow who gave two mites, and Jesus drew the apostles' attention that these others had cast in much, but they had much over, uh, when he said that she'd cast in more than they all, because she'd cast in all that she had. We mustn't forget that Barnabas is of the same kind. 
You understand what happened. He sold all that he owned. Bereft. Now that's giving. That is giving. Well, why did he do this? Well, they all held things in common, but also it's important to notice that he is very much of the mind that those Christians who have been disenfranchised by their Jews read about it in John 9. What did they do? They put the blind man out of the synagogue, but Jesus found them and said, do you believe in the name of the Son of Man and Son of God? Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in? And I that speak unto you am he. So to trust in Christ at this particular time and own that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, was to become disenfranchised from your family, from your kin, from your kin. So Barnabas's help would be greatly appreciated and gratefully acknowledged. Now, it's gaining a Paul's acceptance. You've got to see what went on. It's gaining a Paul's acceptance and full acceptance too. If you come on there now, yes, next one, yeah. Well, he'd been the consistent enemy of the church over a period of probably five or six years. What you and I would call enemy number one. We'd have called him enemy number one. And you don't see enemy number ones converted every time, even though our brother Peter's mentioning the militant uh, Buddhist. But you don't find enemy number one getting converted very often. But this is an exception. And it's Barnabas that first recognizes it. Oh, his large heart, his generous spirit. You say, oh, well, he was gullible. He was taken in by Paul. Don't you, don't you go down that track at all. He was nothing of the kind. He checked Paul out. I mean, to have a large vision and a generous heart doesn't mean that you kind of go to sleep with the blinkers on. You do not. He checked them out and heard his testimony for himself and was persuaded that Paul had become the genuine article. Thank God for that. The church in Jerusalem didn't think the same. So here is, here is, Barnabas, ahead of the church, I suggest that he was the head of a, he was ahead of the, ahead of the, the apostles too. You and I would have thought, surely, Peter, you would have checked him out. You would, wouldn't you, Peter? You would have thought so, but it's Barnabas that steps forward and tells them what's happened and tells them in no uncertain term that he who was the persecutor has now become the preacher. So coming on, what do we see? Paul returns to, to Jerusalem. He meets with a less than warm response. 
I'm so pleased that we have so many nationalities in this church. I don't know what the last count is, but at one stage we had quite a number, and I expect we still have. And no one's saying, you don't belong here. On the contrary, we're saying, you're one with us. And long may it continue. But if you had been in the biased church in Jerusalem, where, hmm, you're a Jew, you Paul, you're a Jew, but you're a renegade Jew. You are, you are just the total anathema to us. But Barnabas tells them that he's the Dinkum article and tells them in no uncertain terms that they should accept him. And we're told in Galatians that he stayed with Peter for 15 days and he also met James at the same time. And neither of them said, you can't come in here. It shows the, the mark that Barnabas had had upon them that neither Peter nor James protests about his acceptance. Very important. So as a result, the church then thaws. That's, that's, that's a lovely word, isn't it? They thawed their, their lack of feeling. Now they warmed towards him. And just as well, because he was going to become the foremost apostle. And just as well that he was one of the most important people in the church of the book of the Acts. Just as well. You see, if you shut out people that you don't think should be included in, watch out. You might have shut out a flaming evangelist. You might have shut out a very faithful Bible teacher. You might have shut out a very good elder. I mean, to be quite honest, if some of us, when we started, we would, we, we, you would have shook your head and said, well, I don't think he's going to make very much. And one of the delights of my life has to be, to be proved wrong, that people that I thought wouldn't make it have. And people I thought would haven't. So we need to, we need to sharpen our understanding of what God is doing. He is actually reaching into the heart and life of the church to raise up people that will do his work and fulfill his will. Now, coming on. I think we've said enough about that, so let's go on again now. Uh, yes. What about the Gentiles now? You're a true blue Jew. And you don't like the Gentiles because they don't eat the same food as you eat. They don't talk the same language as you talk. They don't dress the same way as you dress. They're really not even a part of it. But Barnabas won't hear a word of this when they sent him down to check out the Gentiles. What did he do? He was glad. I think that's a very interesting statement concerning Barnabas. He was not sad because he saw the Gentiles were starting to pour into the church. And you know, a self-respecting Jew says, you can't come in here, you might take over the whole church. And we Jews might be the, might be the, the uh, minority. That's why the Jews kicked up such a ruffle at the Jerusalem conference. They saw only too well that the Gentiles were coming to faith 
on great, in great numbers, far in excess of what was going on in Israel. The same thing appertains to that. When I went to Israel in 1974, we asked a very knowledgeable Christian worker there, how many Christians did he thought was in Israel? He said, um, perhaps a thousand. By that time, of course, there were over four and a half million people living in Israel then, and a lot more now. Now, I've heard figures bandied around since that, that that's increased to 10,000. But when you put that in the context of the whole nation, it's a very small amount. And thank God for Barnabas's, and thank God for Peter, who opened the door to the Gentiles. And thank God for Barnabas, who welcomed them in and exhorted them with purpose of heart to cleave to the Lord. Now, coming on. You've got a problem, haven't you? Say, for instance, with the number of uh, Asians now moving into New Zealand, this church becomes three-quarters Asian and, uh, and one-quarter all the rest. What would we do? Here you are, you're a Barnabas. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, I think Barnabas did his homework. I really do. He looked back in Jerusalem and said, I don't know of anyone that can handle the situation that we now face. And Lord, who am I to bring into this? Well, Barnabas, you brought Saul in, and you know that he was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, and you know that he knows his Old Testament back to front, and you know that he's got teaching gift, and you know that he's got preaching worth. So go and get him. So he leaves Antioch and heads for Tarsus. And it's interesting that Paul does not hesitate on the narrative at any rate. He comes. And for a whole year, the two of them are teaching side by side this massive amount of Gentiles who, are, who are, many of them would be absolutely foreign to Christian things. Their knowledge of the Old Testament in the main would have been precisely nil. And to school them in the scripture, talk about a Bible school in a church, they taught them for about a whole year. Thank God for Barnabas. And thank God there was a Saul of Tarsus to be reached. Within the church, yes, to do the job. Now, what happens? Well, the urgent need is met, but now what is going to transpire coming on? What's he going to do now? Well, he's got a problem. It's a big problem. These Gentiles must be brought into the faith, and they are, and coming on now to his broadness of mind where we are. 
you've got a saying that he had a, a broadness of mind that is exceptional. Most of us somehow or other can't include everybody. Do you know that? We have friends within the church, we have contacts within the church, but we wouldn't say that we're on speaking terms with everybody in the church. You say, well, we should be, but we may not be because we have our preferences, we have our, uh, we have our associates, we have the people of our age group and all the rest of it. You can put them all together. But what are you going to do when you have influxes of people coming in? Well, Barnabas, he knew what to do and he shows it. So his high standing in the church is truly notable in his being such a large liberal person of such great generosity that his heart includes them all. Wonder of all wonders. He had got Paul included in the church and he didn't only just include him in the church, by the way. When he brought him from Tarsus, he was putting Paul up alongside of himself. And it's very interesting, there's no suggestion of a competitive spirit. This comes later, of course, in whether they're going to take Mark or not. But at this point, they work hand in hand, heart to heart, mind to mind. Well, what happens? The Lord says, if you're such a broad-minded person, I'm going to call you into full-time missionary work. Although, I think you've got to fairly say that he was already in it. When the church sent him to Antioch, they'd already put him in the way of being a full-time worker. Now, the Lord says, you separate unto me Saul, Barnabas, and Saul to the work to which I've called them. And so, they let them go. And you'll go through Acts 13 and 14 and you will find that Paul and Barnabas are working together as true fellows in the faith and in the work and in the witness. You will notice too that he is absolutely committed to the gospel going to all the Gentiles. And how do we know this? When it comes to the Jerusalem conference, Peter says, I opened the door. Barnabas and Saul tell them what God has been doing among the Gentiles. And they can't deny that such a witness that's been given cannot be denied. Now, The agreement then is that the, Jew, that the Gentiles are to be fully received. It took a, a conference of the church to decide that this was going to be so. We talk about narrow-minded people. Thank God for Barnabas who are broad-minded and says, this is the truth of what God has done. Now, so they sent. 
some other representatives from the church back to Antioch. And what does Paul want to do? He wants to go and see how the brethren are doing and uh, he wants to go back and follow up all the work that they've been involved in. The only problem is that Barnabas wants to take Mark again. Now if you look closely, and we're going to look at this next week so I'm not going to say too much, but if you look closely, it was all very well for Mark while Barnabas was the leader. But between Acts 13 and 1 and Acts 13 and 13, there's a change takes place. It's Paul and his company, and Paul is the leader of the band. And Barnabas is now playing second fiddle. And I remember the old saying from my youth, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. And Barnabas was a very good second fiddler, but not John Mark. When Paul took over, Barnabas left. I will have a good look at that next week, but we shan't go any further. We need to just move on just a little now. Yes, Come on a bit further, and a bit further. A bit further, uh, yes, that's it. Final waiting word. Do you realize that two very important people are brought fully restored into the church through the work of Barnabas? Paul and Mark. Now we'll look at what I've said from that in the learning outcomes, and I've just got a minute or two with you. Now, what? What's the learning outcome? Barnabas is an outstanding and in truth exemplary believer for all of us to follow, particularly those of us of older years. Now I look around our congregation and I see a number of older people. I look around our congregation I see a number in the middle range and I see a number of younger people and I'm saying to myself, do you get to 80 and then drop out? Do you get to 90 and say, well, I've, I've had it, I leave it all to you? Or do you realize that you have an example to set and you have people who are following? All of us have got someone following us, by the way. I hope you don't, don't realize that. I hope you do realize it. I could tell you that every one of you has got someone who is following you, who thinks my word. If that's Christian, I want more of it, you see. Hmm. So older people fly the flag. Well, yes, they do. Two. Look at what I've said. It's too easy for older people to become cynical and critical of others to the detriment of both young and old. Now, when you get older, you've seen it all, haven't you? You've heard it all. You, ah, I hope you don't say this. I know it all because it's just not true. If you've stopped learning, you've stopped living. But I want to tell you this. 
that if you become cynical and critical, you poison the springs of your own life and you become an obstacle in the way of younger people rising. And the worst feature is that you don't only poison the springs of your life and you obstruct younger people who you need to help, but you it becomes contagious, as Hebrews says, lest any root of bitterness bring up and thereby many be defiled. Now don't pretend that I'm suggesting that you should become, you know, so mamby-pamby that... Uh, you just become as soft as butter. I'm not suggesting that at all, but I am suggesting that if you and I are going to be Barnabas, we're going to be not only the church of the helping hand, but people who help others. Now, thirdly, what about these uh, people that get converted that you and I have written off and we would say in our heart of hearts, I don't think he'll ever be a Christian. And they become a Christian. We need Barnabas to take them under their wing and to shepherd them in the truth of God and in the things of God and in the church of God. The most unlikely characters... When I left to go and live in Australia some years ago, two elders from this church came to see us off. And the telephone rang, and I'm not mentioning who they are, by the way, they're not present elders, but two elders came, and they were trying to work out who I was talking to on the other end of the telephone. And that went on for about half an hour, and they still couldn't work it out. Until almost at the end, when I mentioned the person's name, and I put down the telephone. Now these two elders said to me, what are you still persisting with that person? And I'm praying furiously, what do I say to these two venerable elders? I said very quietly, well, we are in the saving business, aren't we? We are. Yes. Now, four, all young believers need an express desire for older and more experienced mentoring. The number of young people that have come to me over the years and said, Mr. Boyne, do you know someone who could, who could help me and mentor me? And I've had to think twice about who would be that person. So don't you think that older people can get away with saying young people don't want to have anything to do with us? That's not true. I'm thinking of a lady not far from this assembly in another town whose husband died. And as I was visiting, she said to me, now, now, Brother Jack, we're used to having young people through our home. And I said, I'm all alone now, but I still want to help them. What can I do? I said, get three or four at a time. They will talk to each other and you'll get a word in edgeways. And she said, it's working splendidly. And it's true. Now, come to five. Vicious opponents of the Christian faith certainly need older, wiser heads to reshape them, shall we say, to reorganize them. Am I going to use the word to reform them? 
I mean, they've been criminals. And now they become Christians. Watch this you. We used to have a number of students come to the Bible school and they were sent there by elders because elders admitted that they couldn't do anything with them. They said, go to Bible school and they will sort you out. We sorted some out. But I can tell you that I understand elders' frustration and feeling very flummoxed by the fact that what are we going to do with this person? And it needs God-given wisdom and it needs a Barnabas to prevail. Now, what about six now? It takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Barnabas did this with Saul when Saul took over the missionary band, even though God had designated Barnabas and Saul. John Mark didn't. Was it a personality clash? More of that next week. Come on to seven now, and we're almost there. We need partnerships in the church between the old and the young. Is that true? That is true. I have some grandchildren with my good wife. We have some grandchildren, and the relationship between the very old and the very young is something that I marvel at. The chemistry, the chemistry is wonderful. And, and grandma and grandpa can say things that no one else can. Oh yes. Well, come to eight. You're a young person. How many old friends do you have? Mark had three. Barnabas, Peter, and, oh, dare I say it, and Paul. That John Mark made good was the result of Barnabas, then Peter, and finally Paul. Oh, let me ask you, you're an older person, how many young friends do you have? It cuts both ways, doesn't it? Oh, yes, it does. Now lastly, we, we as a church need each other. I tell you, we do. We need each other. We need the gifts that each other have got. And we also need the encouragement which each of us can give. I want to say to you that as an older person, I see my greatest role at the present time is to be an encourager of others. I know how discouraging life is at the moment. And we need people who not, well, I'm not talking about giving people a pat on the back, because as one of my old teachers used to say, if you give them a pat on the back, beware, you might get dust in your eyes. And you just might. But we want people who will stand by and encourage. Of course you can do it, of course you can do it, of course you can do it. So let's pray together now. This day, our Father, we pray that your good hand will be upon each of us, that we might stand perfectly complete in all the will of God. Undertake for the old amongst us, that we might see what we can do for you. 
Let's have a look at the young amongst us and see how best they can be helped. And the middle bracket, we pray that we will see what our role is within the ongoing church. And to your great name be all the glory. This we pray through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.